Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Who can say who's with you, Chris? Only St. Benedict knows. The other saints you don't want to listen to. It's not, no. they, they don't know what they're talking about, but St. Benedict's the one to listen to. They lie. Yeah. <laughs> they lie. <That's> <laughs> this week, we'll be discussing two films from legendary horror filmmaker Lucio Fulci. Now, while Fulci is best known for some of the graphic horror films such as Zombie 2, City of the Living Dead, and The House by the Cemetery, over the course of his three-decade career, he made films in almost every genre, including the two Gialli that we'll be looking at today, both of which feature fantastic performances from actress Florinda Bulkin. First up today is the evocatively titled A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Terror. <coughs> Biting. Clawing. Gnawing <coughs> its way into your brain. She was standing there in front of me, in her fur coat. So, she takes it off. Not a bloody stitch on. Hate, as personal as your own pulse. I didn't kill her. Both of this week's movies are fascinating and multi-layered films. Both have social themes that deal with the changes that were going on in the 1970s, and both are completely entertaining and engaging mysteries. Lizard in a Woman's Skin was directed by Lucio Fulci and written by Fulci with collaborators Roberto Gianviti, Jose Luis Martinez Molia, and Andre Tronchi. And while we've looked at other films in this series that were set outside of Italy, the London setting of A Lizard in a Woman's Skin makes it feel the least Italian of any of the films we've discussed so far. And I think that's particularly interesting because the second film that we, we're talking about today actually feels the most Italian of the films we've talked about so far. So it's, it's really interesting, the differences between these two films from the same filmmaker back to back. Yeah, um, there are very similar themes in both. Yep. There are very similar shots in both to just go on the more surface level. Totally. Uh, where you see some signatures happening. I couldn't help, Chris, but think back to Conquest as well. <laughs> it's true. Yes. Because that was another Fulci film that was outside of the genres that I mostly knew him from, but where I could see uh, some of his style and, shall we say, his... Um, uh, preoccupations coming through. And I think the, the Gialli are obviously closer to the more gonzo horror that I've watched uh, of his. And yet, um, it's, it is quite different. Yeah, no, it's 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 different. It's really interesting. This movie, it stars Brazilian actress Florinda Balkan, Jean Sorrell, Stanley Baker, Leo Gen, and Anita Strindberg. It's just a fascinating film. We open in the midst of a dream sequence with uh, housewife Carol Hammond moving through this mostly empty train car. And the dream sequences in, in Lizard and a Woman's Skin, the, the really nightmares are absolutely incredible. I, honestly, they are some of the best 
dream sequences I've ever seen. The way they start out accessible and normal and then get more and more unusual as they go. Like it, it really feels like how dreams actually function. You're absolutely right. And yeah, I want to let our audience know that first dream's not that accessible. <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah. they do get they do get wilder and wilder. Yeah. What and look, and I blame Lucio himself for this, but I have to start off uh, again making grand pronouncements. <laughs> this movie, which is what a year into the trend after the Bird with the Crystal Plumage, right? Yeah, it's about a year after Bird with the Crystal Plumage. About a year. These things work work fast over there, and at that time, yeah, that's that's the way the way Italy does it. You know, and having seen a bunch of these already, this dream sequence and and throughout this film, and then what what also transpires in the next film, this feels like he, while he is making movies that follow in this trend encapsulated inside inside the peanut butter is the little pill <laughs> that turns into what Italian horror becomes after this trend is done. Yes. You do not get deep red without these two movies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and then from there, you don't, you know, you get you, you get the Suspiria. Yeah. You know, and then for you know, Fulci's other horror. Yeah, absolutely. The the acorn is inside the 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 sandwich. I don't know what the acorn is inside the sandwich. That feels like a code for something. Yeah, but you know, you know what I mean. It's... But appropriate. I could believe that there would be an acorn in a sandwich in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> we start out like the title of the opening dreams. We start out on this sort of empty train. Like the, 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 we see Carol Hammond on this empty train, but then the the train becomes a crowded train, and then it becomes a hallway filled with naked people, and and we get this image of this beautiful blonde woman on a bed of red velvet, but then Carol's on the bed, and the blonde woman is approaching her. So that that thing that happens in dreams, where logic goes out the window, but because it's a dream, you don't ignore, like you don't realize that. Oh well, wait. She was on the bed a second ago. Now I'm on the bed and she's approaching me. Oh, by the way, it's a sexy dream. It is. Many of them are in this in this one. Indeed. But to, to touch on this for one second, since you brought it up, because we've, we've had uh, naked sexy times in many of the other films that we've watched to date. And I have to say, Fulci, it's artistic. It does not feel sleazy. It doesn't even necessarily feel like it is trying to arouse me. Yeah. Not that not that the women aren't beautiful and not that they're not shot that way. Oh, no. But it is not it is not about the audience's desire for what they're seeing on the film. Right. Uh, that is not what those scenes are about and it like you can totally feel it. I, I can't break down, I don't have enough time or enough brain power to break down exactly the techniques as to why that is. Uh, one of them, though, is he does not necessarily cut up body parts uh, disorientedly uh, via close-ups and, and cutting in a, in a way that is meant to arouse you. That's just one thing. That right. Happens. No, a- absolutely. No, it, it, that is that is absolutely true. Carol awakens from her dream and, and to find where she lives in this beautiful London townhouse in Belgrave Square with her husband, Frank. And Joan, his teenage daughter from a previous marriage, Frank works for Carol's father, Edmund, a wealthy and successful lawyer with political aspirations. But next door 
In the house next door lives Julia Durer, the blonde woman from Carol's Dream, who appears to be kind of like a queen of the liberated counterculture set. Her place seems to be a continual orgy of sex and drugs, and the film draws some very sharp comparisons between these two houses that share a wall, sometimes literally with split screens. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I I just realized something, because we're into the movie now. Um... You forgot to describe the scene with the killer with black gloves and the horrible murder they commit. There's uh there's not. There's not we don't see that. There's not uh it's a little different oh, here. Yes, yes, because as you're setting up, this is not a movie, like many Gialli are, about a killer stalking women and potentially tacked on the mystery of who is that killer. That is not this movie at all. No. This is the movie about a young woman going through some shit yeah <laughs> like psychologically th- this feels very different and yet it it is a mystery oh it absolutely absolutely and, and it will keep you guessing until the very end i mean it, it's 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 one of the best I, I i love the mystery in this movie i love the oh absolutely because uh, it, it really well we'll get into it but like it starts to it asks a question of like well how could this be and you really you really kind of like it's 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 fascinating. But we have, before that, I was setting up these two worlds. In 1971, in, in particular, in a place like London, which was very cosmopolitan, you had the mix of the of the establishment world and the counterculture world, and they were kind of, you know, coming into collision with one another. We, we have this great scene where you have, like, on one, in one house, you have this wild party taking place, and the other is a very sort of staid, proper, formal formal dinner and there's a great shot mm-hmm. where we pan down and and Joan the teenage daughter of of the husband from a previous marriage is tapping her feet and it's just like oh well she's she's kind of has the desire to be in that you know that world and oh, yeah. I mean I I don't know I mean I I'd like to think I'm not a square rob but you know there's got to be a middle ground in these two lifestyles <laughs> like on the one hand like if there was a party going on like that next door to me every night i'd probably lose my mind yes and visually this is and this is something that gets used to a different effect in in uh don't torture a duckling next mm-hmm. probably notice and i'm not just calling this out because i have to although that is also part of the reason sure there there are so many split diopter shots and i think a few that actually are split diopter shots there are definitely a few real ones absolutely they are used to such specific purposes and um you because this this film in particular is about the clashing of the two worlds Mm -hmm. and sometimes those worlds are often represented by characters and you get that separation in frame totally between characters to show and there's one one style of it's not even a style. I guess there's one exact shot that gets repeated a few times, I think, in this one and and in the next one. He uses the same frame where uh, foreground on the right-hand side of frame is a face in profile looking left. Right. The character in left on the left side of the frame is in the background and facing camera. You get that a few different times between the two movies and then the, the literal split screen between locations. I, I think visually he's, he's having these markers all the time and separating people 
even when they're in the same room together. Uh, actually, absolutely, especially absolutely. when they're in the same room together. Yeah. I should say. Uh, I mean, and it's interesting because you know you have these two worlds: the the countercultural world and the establishment world. And what I find, what I love, is that Fulci, to his credit holds both groups in equal contempt. Yes. Like, he, the hippies are a drugged-out, murderous lot. You know, this movie was definitely made in the post-Manson murders era where the idealization of the counterculture had given way to something much darker. But the establishment doesn't fare much better. Like, beneath, beneath their manners, like, they're fairly debauched as well. Like, Carol's husband, Frank, is having an affair with his secretary. The father may not be doing uh, smoking dope, or, uh, you know, using the uppers or the downers, but he's basically admits to getting drunk on a nightly basis. He actually tells his daughter, if you got a little drunk every night, it would cure your insomnia. Like, the only real difference between the establishment and the counterculture is one maintains the veneer of respectability. And that is, um, when you go through all of the red herrings bit by bit in this movie, it's a little different. In Blood and Black Lace, all of the red herrings were what was your individual motive? Right. So it was all about, oh, did you owe money or this or that? In this movie, they really, for the most part, don't traffic in those kinds of motives. It is mostly you're a suspect because we've now learned about your rotten core as a human being. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and as you said, every no matter where you come from, this movie can and probably does reveal the fact that you have a rotten core of humanity in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the only one that might come out somewhat unscathed is the is the police detective uh, played by Stanley Baker, who kind of looks at everybody with equal derision and as as such feels like he's almost uh, the Fulci surrogate character. Yes. In the, you know, but as I mentioned, Carol's husband works for Carol's father, which is an absolutely terrible, terrible situation. My God, I would never want to find myself in that because it just just feels like it's no good. But her father, Edmund, gets a call at his office threatening to reveal damaging information about his family. And he immediately asks Frank if he's having an affair, which Frank denies, although he actually is. And I want to point out, again, talk about framing shots, which I, I admittedly talk about less than you. But in this case, there's something I noticed. Um, there's a shot when Edmund asks Frank about if he's having an affair, about, you know, mm. are, you, are you having an affair? There's this great shot where Frank is framed by two different portraits of Carol that are sitting on her father's desk. And one is formal and stern, and the other is sort of casual and smiling. And I was just like, that is a fantastic bit of filmmaking right there. Absolutely. And there's so much of that all over this movie. Um, and again, there are many of these movies that are very well made and even directed, I think, uh, in an entertaining fashion and artistic fashion. But man... You know, in this time, it's with with both of the Fulci movies, uh, I would say, you know, so far also the Argento and the Baba. Mm -hmm. It really is. There's just another level. These are movies that you can do the old cliche. You can turn the sound off on these fuckers. Yeah. And you can watch and you will. Well, you'll know as much as was going on as you did with the sound on, frankly. It is a giallo. But uh... <laughs> yes, it is giallo. It is confusing. Uh, and that's just part of it. Like So on a, on a wet and rainy Monday night, Frank drives down to a country house where he meets his mistress. And we can see the same distinctive convertible parked outside there that we saw outside the townhouse earlier. Carol 
that night has another dream, much like her opening dream. Uh, and it's, it's again, sensual and, and, uh, and sexy. But this time, it climaxes with Carol stabbing and killing Julia Durer with this ornate letter opener, which they refer to as a paper knife. I guess that's the English term for a letter opener, but it's a letter opener. Yeah. And the dream features some of the most bizarre imagery. There's like a giant bird that's rendered in stop motion animation, which I just loved. And there's there's very notable makeup and and gore effects to some, for some of the for the murder, as well as some of the kind of bizarre faces that. I just think it's oh, we're seeing the beginning of Lucci, Lucio Fulci going into some of the the horror stuff because he would you know obviously in those later films he would use a makeup effects to great effect and it's just it's fascinating. Yeah, the makeup effects are great. That bird, I, it might be a white swan or white goose. I really couldn't quite tell, but you do see that later on. That is artwork. Yes, that is at a particular location, which shall remain nameless at the moment. Uh, and I don't even know that we're going to essentially call it out, but it does wind up becoming a clue of sorts. Yes. Um, or at least a faux clue. But it really is great. And this, and I, I think it is in this sequence that you get a little bit of it in the first one. But with this one, you get so much more of a feeling of the neighbor's bedroom. Oh, yeah. Of being just this like black void. Yeah. Where really you have the the bright colors of the bed where all of the action will be. Yeah, this red uh, crushed velvet bed yeah, in the middle uh, of like a black space. It's like if Ebenezer Scrooge was sexy, that's the bed, <laughs> you know? Oh, oh, that's the that's the version of a Christmas Carol we haven't had yet. My goodness. Oh. Yes. Uh, here's the thing, and here's the twist. And we learn, like, a couple days later, it's discovered that Julia Durer is actually dead, and she was murdered in exactly the same fashion that Carol described in her dream. This is where we're introduced to Inspector Corvin of Scotland Yard, played by Stanley Baker, who, again, as I said, has a barely disguised contempt for everybody in the film. Like, we're introduced to the scene where they're driving across London to the crime scene, and he's in the backseat with his, like, one of the other cops talking about it. And there's a moment where the junior detective sprays this breath spray into his mouth, Uh, and Corvin just gives him the most withering look. And I'm like, I don't know why pleasant-smelling breath warrants derision, but Corvin is so irritated at everybody that I love it. Yeah. And the inspector, there's another scene, uh, I think further down, where he's talking with uh, another man in his office, and the uh, the guy just grabs his cigarettes and takes one without asking, yes. and gives this withering look. And then when the uh, secretary comes in and there's a tray that has a coffee or tea, I'm not sure, and a alcoholic beverage, and she sets it down the wrong way so that the alcoholic beverage is toward the inspector. And the other guy's talking the whole time and you're going through kind of like case and exposition. Yeah. And he just disdainfully turns the tray yeah. so that the alcohol is by the guy, the other guy. Because yes. too early and we're on the job for that. Yeah. Um, but he has those little moments peppered throughout. Absolutely. He's got a boss who's clearly like a member of the upper class. He hates that guy. Yeah. He hates the the hippie riffraff that he has to deal with. He hates everybody. And, uh, you know, Fulci, I think... Uh, uh, feels much the same way. Uh, and also, he's one of the most capable detectives we've seen. Like, in terms of, like, police detectives, not like an amateur detective, but in terms of police detectives, he's he's a very capable detective. You want this guy on the case. If he 
lived in what Long Island or Staten Island, the 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 newlywed bride killer would have been caught after one absolutely, murder. absolutely <laughs> would have been he would have taken care of business totally. Carol gets a phone call from one of her friends telling her that Julia Durer was found dead, stabbed, in fact. And in another great example of someone in the establishment upper class engaging in less than moral behavior behind her while the while the we see the the, the friend on the phone, <laughs> yeah. her chauffeur is dressing in the background, implication being that he drives more than his boss's car. Yeah. Uh you see some belt buckling action and some uh some bare chest from this man. Um, who then, uh, without skipping a beat, just asks her if uh, what she wants next. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's great. There's a moment in this uh, in this scene, and I want to come back to it later after we get into that. I think is a key moment of uh, yes, you know. But we'll we'll come back to. I want to mark that scene, and so we'll come back to it at the end. Uh, but the investigation into Julia Durer's death unfolds, and more and more evidence points to Carol. Her fur coat, which she was wearing in the dream, is found at the crime scene. It was her letter opener, uh, which we again saw in the dream, that was the murder weapon, and her prints are on it. And uh, there's an interesting moment where uh, there's a, an Irishman comes into the police station and gives a false oh, confession. Yes. It's so good. But like, man, this movie really hates hippies. <laughs> it just, just yeah. it hates the hippies. And that's another moment for Inspector Corbin to uh, hate everyone because the younger whatever inspector, detective, I don't know, who took the confession, didn't check or follow up on all of the stuff, including how do you say that you killed the Yeah, the he victim. couldn't weed out the uh, the clearly false. And he's, he gives some withering line like, yeah, you'll enjoy your career in the records office or something like yeah. that. It's really yeah. good. Which, by the way, I mean, it plays like that is probably where his career will be. Like, I don't <laughs> think that was an idle talk no. from the inspector. <laughs> So, well, while shopping with with Joan, Carol sees, oh, I should mention, this is an important detail of Carol's dream. In her dream, after she kills Julia Durer, she sees these two hippies who are sort of sitting on this balcony in the bedroom watching the whole thing with these kind of white eyes. They look like ghouls from Carnival of Souls or something. Yeah, very, very Carnival. So, yeah, the white eyes, which, again, Fulci... You know, with the white eyes later in in, in some of his later films, like that's a that, that's a common. I mean, we're seeing sort of this form here, and but there she's out shopping with her daughter in law, and she sees the hippies, and they kind of follow them. It's really interesting. Like they they follow the hippies to their hippie lair, which is an abandoned theater. Yeah, which I'm gonna stop you right here because. <laughs> This movie, decades before 30 Rock, proves Jack Donaghy's advice. Never go never with a hippie to a secondary to a location. Second location. <laughs> never. Don't do it. Don't don't do it. No, no better than that. But no. yeah, they go with the hip, they go to the hippies to the theater, and and Joan kind of approaches them and asks if they recognize Carol, which they don't. I have to point out, Florinda Balkan wears the most amazing clothes throughout this film, and she makes every outfit work. Like, including this sequence where she's wearing a hat that looks like a giant Carmen Sandiego hat, but she looks amazing in it. The, Chris, uh, as you know, my wife, not normally watching all the movies with me, especially not spooky, scary ones, right? Sure. But she did sit down for for part of this uh, with me <laughs> one evening. And I here are the only things that she had to say about this movie. It was a short period. Uh-huh. But she just said, I love her dress <laughs> and hers, that fabric. 
I love Italy. And that that's her review <laughs> of a lizard and woman skin. Uh, that is perfect, and it absolutely and it's not it's not 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 inaccurate review. And no, it, it, a <laughs> yes. it's not inaccurate. B uh, it sounds exactly like what she would say. Like that's just yes. well, there you go. That that absolutely. Um, Carol's fingerprints eventually come back as on the murder weapon, and Carol is arrested as a consequence of that. But but she makes bail for pretty quickly with the help of her wealthy lawyer father. And even Inspector Corbett has doubts about the case, particularly how could she have dreamed a crime before it happened in such detail? And he starts to wonder, because she keeps records of her her dream. She's got a dream diary. She, she talks to her therapist about these dreams. She tells all the dreams to her therapist. Could someone have found the records of, of her dream and stage the crime scene exactly like that to implicate her. You're forgetting Carol's fingerprints on the paper knife and the fur coat. Well, it is Carol's fur coat and Carol's paper knife. It's perfectly natural that her fingerprints should be all over it. But does that prove that it was Carol, and could only have been Carol, that took them to the place where Dura was killed? And the dream? You're forgetting the dream. Uh, Yes, Carol was supposed to dream the murder while somebody else did it, in exactly the same way the murder was committed. Dream telepathy. Are you trying to tell me that Carol is some kind of clairvoyant? The dream. Dr. Kerr has been good enough to let me have the tapes of his sessions with Carol, so that I might prepare a defense on the basis of split personality. He thought I might find something useful. And indeed, I think I have. Listen to this. I can remember the door. The door opening. But it's all so hazy now. Yesterday morning, the whole thing was so clear. Why didn't you make your notes, as usual? I could remember it so easily. I didn't need to make any notes. Dreams have a short life in the memory. You should always write them down. And, and even from the very beginning, when you see her telling uh, her therapist about one of the earlier dreams. Yeah. The way that therapist talks is very leading. Yeah. And he's saying a lot of things like, oh, you don't remember. You need to write this down. Don't yes. you remember when you did this? So there's, from the get-go, a heavy implication of... I, is she being incepted or are, or after the yes. fact? Because the, the dreams being written down is mentioned as well. It is someone seeing it after the fact and then it's the perfect alibi. That's one of the fun elements because it is also playing with, um, can she even believe her own dreams? Uh, not less so for the character, but more for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Carol's father places her in a sanitarium while she's awaiting trial. And there, at one point, she sees one of the two hippies who chases her through the building. Here we get into one of the, perhaps the most infamous scene of the film, uh, where she opens this door to a bizarre experiment that is going on where like four dogs have been vivisected and are, but are being kept alive. And and it's it's grotesque. I got to be honest, it is it is graphic and upsetting. And frankly, it's my least favorite moment in the film because it goes on so long. Well, and this is the section of the film when looking at it in relation to what comes after both for Fulci and in Italian horror cinema. Yeah. All of the dream imagery before was literally in a dream. Right. This is the one. This is the big section of the film, I'll say, where 
it actually bleeds into reality. And if you look at this sequence from the you're at your rich sanitarium where literally no one exists and the whole thing is abandoned so that a hippie can chase you around except for the unmanned dog experiment. Like none of this makes regular logical sense as far as what the rest of the movie is doing. It only makes dream logic sense. And yet it's supposed to take place in the real world that this is what is coming for Italian horror cinema. Yes. And I'll say it's saying all of that. It could stick out. And yet with the way it's directed and it's fairly deep in, um, it does play, I think a bit more like you're in Carol's head and emotional state. Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel out of place. Uh, I want to mention that it was the, the, the scene again with the dogs. It's, it's, it is an upsetting one, uh, especially if you dog lover, but it, it was so convincing that Fulci and other members of the crew were brought into an Italian court to disprove the claim that real dogs had been killed. And it wasn't until special effects artist Carlo Rambaldi, who later went on to create E.T., brought the fake animals into court that the charges were dropped. There must have been, like, I don't know, a dinner club or maybe just like a, a, a after dinner drinks club of Italian filmmakers who were brought up on charges of animal cruelty because of what they did in a movie and then had to disprove it in court. It's funny because I'll, I'll, I have a story for for the second film. Like, this is not the last time he nearly gets in trouble for something that the people who watched the film thought was real. It's, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. In the meantime, the movie starts to shift suspicion onto Frank, her husband. Could he have somehow found out about Carol's dream and staged the crime scene? Uh, her father finds out that Frank has been having an affair, which he had suspected, and that casts even more suspicion. And then, while staying at her father's country house, Carol is contacted by the female hippie, whose name is Jenny, and told to meet them at an abandoned cathedral. And there, you have this extended chase sequence where Carol's pursued by the male hippie, name is Hubert, and, and it's amazing. And the it was actually filmed at Alexandra Palace, which was the original site of the BBC's television transmissions that began in 1936, and by the early 70s was largely vacant, except for occasional music festivals and concerts. And this chase sequence is incredible. Like, it's these large, empty spaces. Yeah, and you get a lot of, um, the, there's the whole segment with the organ uh, when you get yeah. there, that's fantastic. There's some bats, some very realistic looking bats that I know are not real, but they they look great. Yeah, and, and you get a nice, and it's very, very tense. Um, and Ennio's score in this, I mean, the whole movie is fantastic. Yeah, I should have mentioned it's a great Ennio Morricone score in this film. Terrific. We could probably just put a post-it, a sticky note at the top of the podcast. <laughs> great score by Ennio, because that'll cover almost all of them, right? <laughs> almost. It really will. <laughs> The, the the chase spills out onto the roof when Carol is saved at the last minute by a cop with a high-powered rifle. Shortly after this, Joan, the, the daughter-in-law, is contacted by Jenny, the female hippie, in this amazing scene where Jenny is throwing knives. Like, like Joan goes to visit her, and Jenny is throwing knives dipped in paint at a canvas. What do you want? Oh, nothing. I've got a date. The redhead told me to wait here for him. 
What's that for? What are you doing? Painting. Painting. And it's so good. It's just so cool. Absolutely. You know, at this point, too, there's some, you know, there's some suspicion about about Jenny herself. Yeah. Um, on Red Herring uh, Street, as you like to say. On Red, yes. The Red Herring District goes all the way to London in this case. Because that scene back when they went to, to see if the hippies knew Carol, like, apparently someone Jenny knew also was like, hey, I'm in hippie land too. So you, you go, wait, she has connections in this world. And now she's going to see this artiste and talk. And so, and the way they're talking, it almost... Are they talking in code? Are they have they actually been in codes yeah. on something? It's a little vague at first. And then it gets less vague. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot less vague. <laughs> Indeed. The next day, Joan is found in the park, her throat cut. Murderous hippies strike again. Maybe have how many how many deaths are the hippies responsible for? We don't know. Uh Corbin is convinced that Julia Durer was the woman blackmailing Edmund about Frank's infidelity and eventually tracks down the hippies and interrogates them. They confess to stalking Carol and killing Joan, but deny knowing who killed Julia Durer. They were at the house that night, but they were so high on acid that they can't remember what they saw. You don't remember anything at all about that night? Yeah, I remember. Yes, I remember. Seeing that night, a lizard. The woman's skin. Shit. No, beautiful. Just beautiful. Title drop in the dialogue. Ding, 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 ding. Absolutely. Uh, Corbin then receives a phone call informing him that Carol's father, Edmund, has killed himself and left a note confessing to Julia Durer's murder. Okay, so. Spoiler line, as we do in this series, we're going to cross the spoiler line. We're going to talk about who is really responsible for the murder of Julia Durham. This is where the rubber meets the road here. So uh, if you if you want to remain unspoiled, if you're interested in this film, skip to the next chapter and you can hear us talk about Don't Torture a Duckling. But here we go. Corvin visits Carol at her father's grave. He asks her if she knew about the phone call her father had gotten from Julia Durer, and she says yes. And that slip is enough for Corvin to realize the truth. That Carol knew about the phone call because she was with Julia Durer when it happened. Julia Durer wasn't blackmailing Edmund about Frank's infidelity. She was blackmailing Edmund about Carol's infidelity, which she knew about because Julia Durer was the one having an affair with Carol. And to protect that secret, Carol murdered Julia Durr. It wasn't until she had killed her that Carol noticed the two hippies on the balcony. She fled the scene and fearful that the hippies would identify her, she concocted the whole dream story to her therapist as a way of establishing a temporary insanity defense. What Carol couldn't have known was the hippies were so hopped up on LSD, they didn't see her. They only saw a lizard in a woman's skin. Okay. There's a lot here. This is this is so fascinating. We have previously had unreliable narrators who, for one reason or another, couldn't 
or didn't understand what they have seen. Here, Fulci turns the audience into the unreliable narrator. We are shown Carol's dreams and assume they're accurate retellings of what she's dreamed. But really, the only evidence is Carol's own words. Yeah. So everything we've seen is a lie from her. Everything we've seen is a lie. She never had those dreams. This isn't not a case of she was a tortured soul and these dreams represented what happened. No, it is all a lie. And we buy it because of her position of respectability, not just within the social cast, you know, within the world of the film, but frankly, her positioning as a character, as a lead, as a female lead in this film, we impart certain qualities to her that are not there. Absolutely. And he shows us the rot at the core of those assumptions. Fantastic. Oh, absolutely. It is one of one of the best twist endings to any of these. And her performance is throughout this whole Oh, she's movie, amazing. is amazing. Yes. And she's saying very little. She's got very little actual dialogue in this movie. Even less in the next movie which we'll get to, but yes. like in this movie she doesn't talk a lot. But there, you every every expression on her face, she is fascinating. And I want to talk about going back to that uh, that scene I mentioned with the telephone, because now that we've sort of gone, we've crossed the line. Uh, that it's that scene is a little bit of a cheat because she's on the phone, she's alone. Nobody else can see her. So when she's told by the friend that Julia Durer has been murdered, she has this visual reaction, but she knows that Julia Durer has been murdered and she knows how it was done because she did it. Yeah. And so she's not putting on a false face for someone else in that room. Right. They're all, everybody's behind her and can't see her. It's a, it's a little bit of a, of a cheat, but it's the movie. Otherwise it's so good. Uh, like uh, like the bird with the crystal plumage, we have a character making a dying declaration of guilt, ultimately that turns out to be false, and made out an effort to protect a loved one who was in fact the true culprit. Um, honestly, Edmund's act of being a father trying to protect his daughter might be the most tender emotional act in an otherwise fairly brutal film. Yeah. And, you know, in that film, there was a trauma that, you know, was inflicted on that woman or i guess girl at the time yeah and then the the husband was protecting her out of love because she's literally insane this movie again to go with fulci's examination of society this is cold-blooded murder done to protect her good name yes to protect her status they're not going to lose their money just to protect the affair from coming out yeah it's it it's it's fascinating i, I mean it's it's an amazing film. I, it's a very angry film. Like I said, it holds both the counterculture and the establishment in very harsh contempt. Uh, it's worth mentioning that, that Lucio Fulci had recently suffered a tragedy in his life just before making this film. His wife had taken her own life. And this was the first film he made following that. So I I have to think that that, you know, kind of affected his headspace. How could it not? You know, yeah. it, it, as, a, as a consequence, it's, it's, a, it's a very angry film. Uh, the film I want to point out was originally entitled The Cage, but it was changed to a lizard and a woman's skin fairly late in production in order to capitalize on the trend of animal-themed giallo movies uh, in the wake of our well, the film that kicked this off. The bird with the crystal plumage, uh, but it's terrific. It's it is one of the best films uh, I think we're we're gonna have in this series. Obviously, up there with Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Blood and Black Lace. It's it's dynamite. It is, and yet for me, it might be just a tick 
lower on my personal scale compared to the next film that Mr. Fulci made. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. Fulci followed A Lizard and a Woman's Skin with another giallo. This one, with some strong similarities, but also some sharp differences, 1972's Don't Torture a Duckling. someone's mouth and he kills who who does the killing anybody man or woman who's a child of the devil captain are these merely superstitions i don't know Pino, no one's ever been killed because of magic. No one. It's all nonsense. Who was that? Oh, she was born here. Her father made a fortune in Milan. Come on. I won't bite you. I'm coming. Apparently, she was implicated in a drug scandal a few months ago. I don't know any of the details, but her father seemed to think she'd better stay here. I wouldn't say she's your most devout parishioner. I know. In fact, it's only since she arrived here that funny things have been going on. What do you mean? Nothing. It's just sometimes you get suspicious of everyone. Don't Torture a Duckling was directed by Lucio Fulci and written by Fulci along with Roberto Giamviti, who co-scripted Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and Bloodstained Butterfly writer Gianfranco Clarici. And one of the many fascinating aspects of these two films coming from largely the same creative teams and effectively being made back to back is that they are both such innovative examples of their genre. And yet they are so different from one another in, in a lot of ways. Uh, whereas Lizard and Woman's Skin is set in the European cultural hub of London. This film is set in the, a fictional small town in the southern Italian countryside called Acendura. And while the previous film felt, as I mentioned earlier, the least Italian of the Gialli we've watched, this one feels the most Italian. And I should mention that the Campania region where this film takes place is the part of Italy from which my family came from. Yeah, my family did not come from this region, I don't believe, but also south of Rome, because this is, um, and look, I am not an expert on this, but I know a tiny bit, or at least I'm aware of a tiny bit. Sure. That the fact that this is Southern Italy, that is going to, you know, this would equate to doing a deep South in the United States kind of, and I'm going to say folk horror movie. Yes. This is folk horror giallo. (laughs) It is. And even when you've got one of our main characters who the absent dad is from here, and then they talk about made his fortune in, I believe, what, Milan, which is a northern city. Northern city, very, the business capital of Italy. Yeah. And then when you look at, and I can only think this is a very deliberate casting choice, that woman is extremely light-skinned. Yes. And everyone else from that this town is not. They are very deep olive-skinned. Yes. And 
this look, I can't again speak to all of those politics in Italy, but I know that they exist. No, I think you're right on the money, though. That is all my understanding as well. You know, the northern Italy is is much more in some ways urbane, and you have some of the big cities up there. Obviously, Rome is kind of right in the middle, but south of Rome, you get the more rural areas where you know uh, development comes slower, and and you can have a lot of those politics of trust and distrust as you do here yes or in any area i guess absolutely you have a a richer city area and then a uh, more rural less uh less rich area and all of the you know all of the strife that can play out personally absolutely all of that and and that is part of that big mix uh that was in the last movie about society kind of being rotten to the core, tearing itself apart a little bit. Yeah, absolutely here too. A much different version of it here, but it's it's there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the first image we see of the film is this very modern bridge cutting across the Italian landscape and this delicate, this image, the, the delicate relationship between nature and modern technology, between traditional ways and uh, the, the ways of the late 20th century as Italy is moving post-war, moving into a, a more developed you know, Western European country. And uh, it's just amazing. And the first character we see in that countryside with that very modern bridge. Are they using that very modern bridge? No, they do not have access to it. They are scrambling over the hard scrabble mountainous countryside on their bare hands and feet. The, the feet are clothed. But yes. Yeah. I love, I love the fact that Fulci, Fulci's name comes up on screen just as we see this pair of hands clawing at the earth. As this woman, played by Florinda Balkan, is digging up what appears to be the remains of a long dead child. Uh, again, the film stars uh, Lizard and a Woman Skin star Florinda Balkan, and she is in a very different role, as well as Barbara Boucher, Tomas Milan, Mark Porel, and Irene Pappas, the, the famed Greek actress. And we see three boys playing near this highway. And then they're engaging in mischief as boys often do, including stuff like shooting at a lizard with a slingshot, which I thought might be a tongue-in-cheek reference to his last film. Oh, maybe. Uh, And then they're also making fun of Giuseppe, the local simpleton, as he spies on townspeople having sex with out-of-town prostitutes. I mentioned the prostitutes are from out-of-town because Achindura is a very traditional Catholic town where they don't even get certain kinds of magazines and they have to bring in their prostitutes from the outside coming in via the fancy new bridge. Yeah, I mean, you know, some rural areas, it's hard to have a doctor. Others, it's hard to have uh, prostitutes. You know, it's the it's the conservative hypocrisy of, of it's the same hypocrisy of of the upper class establishment in Lizard and a Woman's Skin of, oh, we don't approve of, uh, you know, smoking grass, but but we'll uh, we'll get drunk on whiskey every night because that's an approved vice. Yeah, and and when you see this town, which is you know, while it is very rural, is also very very beautiful. Oh sure, you you see that physically, this entire town is living on top of each other. 
literally. Yeah. So there is absolutely no privacy in this place, which is another thing that everyone is in everyone else's business. Yeah. Another part of the uh, milieu at play in this movie. Uh, and it's interesting because the parent of, of the parents of one of the boys, uh, Michele, works at the house of Patrizia, a young woman from out of town who has recently moved to Achandora. And Patrizia has got this stunning modern home, which is another example of like how modernity is existing alongside this traditional environment in kind of an uncomfortable manner. Yeah. I mean, God, I loved her house. I want to live there. And later you actually have the local police officers talking about that the father having built that house essentially as a fuck you to the town. Yeah. <laughs> On purpose. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, whether or not that's true, um, who, who can say? But it certainly visually and architecturally does look like that. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I despite the fact that I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it just does not fit. It just doesn't fit the town. No, it that, just doesn't fit the town. The, the house itself is beautiful, but yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and, and we learn that Patrizia, who's played by Barbara Boucher, was sent here by her wealthy father, who actually owns the house, as we mentioned, after getting out of rehab. He wanted her to live somewhere away from the big city in the spotlight. Thankfully, he had this super sweet house in the country that was built as a fuck you to the town. Yeah. <laughs> and as his parents work for Patrizia, Michele is often sent to bring her things, uh, bring things up to Patrizia. And boy, does he get an eyeful when he does so early in the film. Oh my goodness, because uh, she is lounging in her, her house as naked as you can get. Yeah, I believe uh, suntan lamp, I think, is what's happening there. Yes. but uh, And then yes. she really... And this is so twisted and in a way it is cruel to Michele. Yes. Um, the way that she has him come over and is calling out his desire for her and making fun of him for, you know, I mean, this this is a boy. This is a boy and a very attractive yeah. woman. And it's it's completely wrong. Let's let's just yeah. be clear about that. Like as much as I find a nude Barbara Boucher very appealing this is wrong i mean let me put it this way imagine if the genders were reversed and it was like a 12 year old girl and a you yeah. know 28 year old dude you'd be like oh this is some bad stuff um and yeah the way she 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 teases it it's awful yeah it's awful and it makes her an awful character from the joke yes again the opposite of saving the cat yeah um this is uh sexually shaming a young boy um what's interesting is it how it sets her up this outsider instantly everything that this town probably thinks about her we are shown to be yes she is kind of exactly what everyone here thinks their worst nightmare about this woman is is true at least to some degree absolutely and i want to mention this is the second time in two movies that lucio fulci nearly got in trouble for real life he was arrested on child charges of child endangerment for this scene and the charges were only dropped when he explained that the actor's close-ups were filmed separately and the one shot of michele walking towards patrizia carrying like the orange juice was done with a little person actor done from the back that's how they they got that but that the he was not on set the young yes. boy who played the role was never on set with with naked barbara boucher yeah uh but like it had to go to court for it again yeah and, and it what's interesting is 
beyond the they had to shoot them separate for obvious reasons. You're not going to endanger a child to make a movie. No. But it actually plays again because this is that separation. Because you, for the most part, aside from that introductory shot, you know, from behind or whatever with the orange juice, you can see that she's she's in the room. They are separated. Yeah. You feel that space between them. Yes. That they are not going to... These two are in different worlds. Yeah, they, exactly. Exactly. At the same time that this is happening, that night, another one of the boys that we saw at the beginning, there were three boys who were were uh, kind of hanging out together. Uh, we see another one of the boys, Bruno, being chased through the woods. And right off the bat, what a huge shift from the Gialli we've discussed previously in that the victims here are children. And that changes the tone drastically yeah this is not a thrill ride no in a lot of these films the inventive sequences can become part of the enjoyment of it even though we aren't aren't rooting for the killer absolutely this movie is just brutal and this is where i have my confession to make chris oh the the giallo genre is one that i i'd only prior to this scene the big ones, Frank. Bird with the crystal plumage, black lace, blood and black lace. Red, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Sure. So I, I, a lot of these other classics I had not seen, including this one, but I have a confession of specifically about Don't Torture a Duckling, uh-huh. which is that from the old VHS days, but even when it came back out on DVD and I was a, an older, older person, there was something about the title and the poster that I think quite clearly um, actually communicated the tone of this thing where I, it it just looked like kryptonite to me and I stayed away because I just wasn't ready. I wasn't quite ready to go there. And I, I have to say this movie is very affecting in that way. Oh, it is. It is. This is the most emotional. I think I, it's definitely the most emotional I've been in watching any movie in this series so far. And I have a suspicion any of them after absolutely because this it just pulls no punches i agree yeah no it's 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 what my father would call a tough picture yes yes so bruno's chased through the woods he clearly something terrible happens to him and it's not long before bruno is declared missing and this sends the town into a state of panic and fear uh perhaps a justified panic and fear that brings Andrea Martelli, a journalist from Rome, who comes to the town to cover the case. And he's kind of our detective character, but unlike the other films, there isn't the same sense of obsession, at least not early on, that, that we see with like the, you know, the Sam Dalmas in Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of the police, who clearly want to solve the case, but are more significantly, they want to keep the townsfolk from turning into a mob, something they basically fail at. Uh, and it's interesting. It's it, the, like the authorities are kind of depicted as these well-educated and well-intentioned people that kind of hold the people they serve in con- like kind of a low-level contempt. Uh, that said, the people they serve are superstitious and reactionary and are generally worthy of that contempt. Yeah. At, at the same time, um, because of that, as as you just said, I mean, this is a police force that Justice is not actually what they think of as their number one job. No. And they don't necessarily always pursue it. No, they want to keep things from getting out of control, from getting out of hand. And so, you know, and you'll see this a lot in a lot of horror movies, right? Um, I mean, even like Jaws is a, you know, a a giant example of the authorities don't want to, you know, get to the truth because they they don't want a panic and they want to 
you know, keep order. Really. Yeah. If they didn't have Roy Scheider, that whole, that whole island would be eaten. Yeah. And so this is another example of that style. But here, there because there's kind of a lack of a Sheriff Brody, really. Right. And so, again, this is just more rot of, of society yeah. in this town. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, there are times in this movie when you just wonder, how the hell will anyone solve this? Because I don't, I'm not yeah. sure that anyone wants to. Yeah. Uh, Bruno's parents, they get a, a call from someone claiming to have kidnapped the boy and demanding a ransom. They gather the, the money, which Martelli observes is a fairly small amount for the life of a child, and they make the drop in like an abandoned factory. And the cops easily arrest the man who's coming to pick up the ransom, who turns out to be Giuseppe. Uh, and he claims, he said, I didn't do anything. I found the boy already dead. And, uh, and he leads the cops to the body. And the police should realize that Giuseppe is telling the truth, although the mob outside the police wants Giuseppe dead. But he clearly, he found this body and decided to try and make a little money out of it, which is horrible. But but he's a, he's kind of, you get the impression, he's kind of touched in the head. Yeah, but, uh, but in this place, even with whatever challenges he has, just to invite comparisons in the U.S. studio movie or the Stephen King novel, Giuseppe would be a saint of some kind. Yes. And a... He would, yes. they would be using that character as the beacon of, well, this is a, a pure, unsullied humanity. A, I was just going to say purity. Yeah. Yes. I was just going to say a beacon of purity. But here, no, no, no. Not in Don't Torture the Duckling. <laughs> no, no, no. Not in Fulci no. Land. You know, he 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 sucks too. He's not a murderer, but he, he's still, he's trying to make money off of, uh, you know, the, the, the situation. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough picture. A few nights later, on a very stormy night, Michele sneaks out of the house after receiving a phone call, and he meets an unknown person in the woods and is strangled, and the next day, his body is found. Uh, An important detail here is that there's no sign of molestation on either of the bodies. Uh, And there's some incredible imagery in this scene, which I want to circle back to after the reveal, because I think there's just some amazing stuff that... If you're watching this on a second viewing, you're like, wow, what the, the stuff that Fulci is doing. But you don't necessarily pick it up at first because you don't know who the culprit is. Yeah. And it's just amazing. What I what I found so amazing about this movie, coming right after Lizard in a Woman's Skin, which is this hallucinatory and psychedelic film, Don't Torture Duckling couldn't be further different. It is so grounded and, and it's practically earthy. Like there's a reality here that you don't see in most giallos in large part due to the film's rural setting, which is very unusual for these films. Uh, And you say earthy. I mean, this movie essentially for a color film has no color. Yeah. It is nothing but shades of of browns. You, You get some blacks. I mean, the, the, this film looks as if it's been run through mud or dirt, you know, and, and deliberately so. I mean, it's it's beautiful in its own way. But and look in in a woman or a lizard in a woman's skin, there's a lot of concrete island effect, uh, you know, but you do get you do yeah. get a lot of pops of color. I, I don't honestly, I'm not sure that a primary color exists in Don't Torture a Duckling anywhere. I would have to go back and, and see, but I, I'm i not so sure. Maybe in maybe in uh, 
Patrizia's place. Yeah, because that's that's the that's the island of modernity in this otherwise well, orange juice brown that was secondary yeah. color. Yeah, we should mention that that all the while this is going on, we keep cutting back and forth to Machara. The character played by Florinda Balkan, who we see, you know, she's got these three dolls, like these these three dolls. She's engaging in some kind of ritual. She's burying the dolls. She's also got, again, there's the, the, the skeleton we saw her digging up at the beginning of the film. And she's clearly positioned to be a suspect is is she doing you know something to these children beyond simply making uh effigies of them and and sort of stabbing those effigies with a with a needle like it's and and we keep going back to it It takes a while for us to kind of for her to kind of get looped into the narrative it's really interesting Martelli meets some of the townspeople, including Patrizia, as well as the local priest, Don Alberta, who's a young guy. Uh, his mother lives in the town, as well as his mentally handicapped younger sister, Malvina. And we observe the funeral of Michele. Uh, that is another scene I want to come back to because it is incredible. Yeah. And, but it is it, it, it sort of lays it all out once you realize what the, the, the truth is. The police observe Machara leaving that funeral and they begin to investigate her. And they find that she lives with Francisco, this old hermit who sells potions and charms to the people of the village, many of whom maintain the old superstition. Ah, if you're looking for Machara here, you're wasting time. She does no evil and she knows none. You listen. Listen to the words of old Francesco. I've just got uh, one or two questions more. Have you been looking for Or aren't you interested? Sure, I looked. When she was near at hand. I looked on Friday. Friday at midnight. St. Rocco came to me that night in a vision and said to go to the oak near the crucifix. And what happened? I went to try and find her. The rain was like a blanket over the forest. Did you find anyone there beneath the cross or uh, by the tree? I found someone. The night. And nothing else. San Rocco's a big liar. Yeah. Put your faith only in San Benedict. Nobody's been betrayed by him. See here, Francesco. Yes? A crime was committed, as you must know, on that very spot Friday night. If you say so. If St. Benedict reveals the killer, I'll pass the word on to you. He's just fooling with us. He ought to be arrested, Modesti. Yeah, if you got a mind to start a revolution in Achandura. Look, Francesco, all we want is to ask Machara a couple of questions. She hasn't been here for two weeks. Uh, and when she's coming back, only St. Benedict and St. Mark know that. Excuse me, i got to take a crap. The one cop asked the other, like, doesn't the church, you know, oppose this? And they're like, no, it keeps the keeps the people happy. You know, they they believe in this old stuff, so they don't mind her her doing this stuff. And, and that's actually something that's that's fairly common in large swaths of Europe, or it was, is that 
the local folk traditions, including what you would consider to be magic, you know, the magical traditions, those that survived wound up getting incorporated into the local version of Catholicism, Christianity, whatever. Exactly. This is a time at a pivot point between the old ways, which are increasingly uh, becoming, you know, they're, they're isolated. They, they're increasingly belonging to these isolated rural communities. And a rural community that looks like it, you know, not that you see bombed out places, but this is a place that is still devastated by World War II. Right. This has not been rebuilt. They have not put money in. Uh, the only thing that you see, as you mentioned, the bridge, the bridge, which looks like it's going to ferry people past them. Exactly. For American audiences, they will often think of the post-World War II period as a boom time. Right. Which here it was because our factories were some of the only ones left standing. Uh, so we could make a lot of stuff. Individual European countries varied in in how fast and, and what kind of recovery happened. I think like France, what, what was like the early 60s, I think, when they, they hit their version of uh, a post-war boom finally. It, it's different other areas, but clearly this village... Never got it. No, but but to contrast it to another film we we talked about last week with um, the black belly of the tarantula, where the Giancarlo Giannini character is living in this very new apartment uh, in uh, in Rome, and you can see that there's all construction around there. So like those parts were getting rebuilt, and this is the time when they were being rebuilt. That bridge that runs past Ashendura is is not old. It's That's uh, brand new, and you're right, brings people past the place, not to the place. I want to talk about Francisco and Machara for a few minutes, because there's, again, some interesting and fairly damning stuff about all of this. We learn that Machara was brought to Francisco when she was young, when she was a young woman, because she, quote, had the devil in her. When Francisca was done with her, she also had something else in her, a baby. And it's it's unclear what happened, but apparently the baby soon died, possibly was stillborn. And here's this guy that they accept as, oh, the local the local magician. But yeah, you bring your daughter to get the devil put out and he uh, he he knocks her up. Yeah. And um, again, when the local authority is explaining this to the outside authority, and they ask, like, we're charged up. Like, he's trying to follow up. And the older guy just says, it was rumors. What can you do, essentially? Yeah. You can't rock the boat, especially not with your local, essentially, shaman figure that you need in order to keep the town placated. Uh, again, even your supposed good guys, just the, the rot and indifference to truth they are attempting to find the killer but like it's it's the indifference to the actual damage that's being caused that they do find the cave where where the machara had been living they find the 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 newly buried or newly reburied skeleton of a child and the three dolls and the police hunt down machara and arrest her and then we get one of the most incredible scenes in this film she under interrogation admits to the murders of the children what did you ask Francesco? How to do it? What do you mean to say? Strangle a child? But I didn't strangle them. You say you didn't strangle them? I put them to death in a different way. In what way did you do it? I made three dolls out of wax and painted them black 
Because the spell was for death. I stuck pins all the way through them. You have to do it 13 times. Then I said the words you have to say to command the devils. 13 devils enter someone's mouth by the mouth. They infect the blood and he kills. Who? Who does the killing? Anybody. Man or woman. She genuinely believes that the ritual with the dolls is responsible for the boy's death. Like she really believes it. And the reason she cast the spell was because the boys were playing near the site where she first buried the body of her dead baby, which she later dug up and and buried in the cave. But she didn't literally kill the children, but she believed her actions, her ritual was responsible for killing the children. And it's absolutely fascinating. And frankly, without getting into spoiler details yet, I can say if one actually studies what these folk, ma- you know, the older magics were, were like, canonically, according to this film, she still could be correct. Because the way that kind of magic works in, in reality, if one goes down that road, is not you throw, uh, you know, Expelliarmus and something flies out of someone's hand. <laughs> what happens is you influence the world around you so that this little thing happens. It's more like the uh, the chaos theory. The butterfly flaps its wings oh, over there and oh. it, you wind up with a hurricane on the other side of the, the world. Oh, that's interesting. There's nothing in this movie. And, and when we'll circle back to it because in many ways... If you ask why now, you don't get necessarily a great answer for that, other than she did this magic. Yeah, <laughs> but we'll we'll get there. Yeah, no, that's that's that is true. But because she didn't literally kill these children, she is released by the police. Did not strangle them. Yes. Yeah, she did not strangle them. She did not put her hands around them. So she is released by the police. But the townsfolk still believe she's responsible. And this leads to the most harrowing scene in the film Oof. as a group of men believing Machara to be responsible for the crimes, track her to a local cemetery and brutally beat her with chains and leave her for dead. And we see Fulci again, using the makeup effects that he would be, he's so, he is so adept at that would later become sort of front and center in, in his later horror films are used to the most, realistic and shocking effect and the whole sequence uh is just brutal and you you have the rock music playing from one of the men's car stereo and it's just loud and disruptive in this in this otherwise tranquil setting and it is just it is one of the most harrowing sequences i have seen in any film it's extraordinary and it's terrible it's a tough picture Yeah, I mean, leading into this, you get when the authorities figure out that she they can't keep her because she didn't do it. Yeah. And the local guy is saying, I want to keep her longer. And the other outsiders essentially going, but she didn't do it. We got to let her go. Right. And you know what's in the mind of the local guy. Yeah. And you see the local guy just go, then we release her. You can almost see and this could be me 
where he made the decision in, in order to keep the peace, actually letting her out to be murdered by the town is the best thing for the town. Yeah. And then it happens. This might be one of the very earliest um, postmodern incongruous needle drops with the violence. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I forget what the song is, but it's it's some like late 60s, early 70s rock thing. And I believe that the, the, for the American song that plays at the beginning and it switches, it's talking about a girl and wanting the girl, I believe in a romantic context, you know, like as many songs often are as many songs do sure so you're you're playing with that with the violence and then yeah and then the the effects it, it really is brutal and the the amount of times that we're in the pov of the attackers oh yeah yeah i mean and it's like over and over again absolutely it is yeah it's as you would say as your dad's it's a tough picture it's a tough picture and 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 following the attack which crawls to the highway where you know where which is connected that that fancy bridge and it's not far from the original buried place of her child and as you say numerous cars pass on by and not one stops to help the woman and she dies alone on the side of the road i'm like it's it, it, you know, when we when last year when we did our Get Me Another Halloween series and we were talking about John Carpenter's original Halloween, there's that scene where Lori runs across the street and she's banging on doors to see if she can get help. And, and you know, it's and the light turns off like the porch light turns off where someone clearly heard her and just like and here it's it's the same thing, except, you know, eventually Lori gets away from Michael Myers. But here. Uh, you know, uh, Machara just dies alone on the side of the highway. And it is just, it is just tough. Yeah. As modern Italy races by and leaves her to die, not even knowing what's going on. <sighs> not even knowing, not even knowing, let alone caring. And I, I mean, I just want to say Florinda Balkan, just the most extraordinary performance. Two performances in back-to-back movies, very different. She doesn't talk a lot in Lizard and a Woman's Skin. Here, it's largely dialogue-free, except for the confession when when she gets brought into the, the, the police station. But they are two absolute powerhouse performances, and they are completely different from one another. My goodness. Fantastic. She is the Gina Rollins of giallo yeah I, fantastic there's no question absolutely oh man the the range and what she does and what she can do with with so little yeah uh or seemingly i should say so little but there's a lot uh, agree a lot yes. of body work oh yeah no it's 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 extraordinary the next day another boy is found murdered this one drowned. And Martelli starts to believe that Malvina, the developmentally challenged younger sister of Don Alberto, may have seen something. Earlier in the film, Patrizia had purchased a new doll for the girl to replace the one that, that Malvina had removed the head of. And when the head of this new doll, a Donald Duck doll, is found removed, Martelli starts to believe the girl is imitating the behavior of the killer whom she saw. And I have to mention the title. Don't torture a duckling, which is a reference to the Donald Duck doll rather than a real duck. I think it's got to be Fulci's way of poking fun at the animal themed titles of this era uh, that are so replete. And also for those of you, um, you know, fair use copyright fanatics, this movie is a 
great example of I'm so glad that at that time they weren't sued and stopped from using a doll with the image of Donald Duck. It's a very, very small amount of screen time, right? Yes. I think you only see the Donald Duck, you know, head and, and then the body of the doll it, between the, the, the those two parts, maybe three, four times tops. Yeah, barely. Because you don't see the scene where she buys them. You, you see her taking the girl off to buy it, and then you find out later that all the dolls were ugly, so she bought a Donald Duck doll. But again, for such a small thing, when you look at the intersection of which character is giving it and to whom, so you've got your, essentially your outsider character from the rich north who, um, you know, they have left and extracted what value they could, and now they're like supplanted with their big house you know, sticking out like a sore thumb in this community. You have this community being left behind uh, and left to rot, which it is doing a good job of by the richer parts of Italy. It's not helping itself. I mean, that's for damn sure. No, and it's, but in any case, that Donald Duck doll is such a, I mean, you want to talk about a metaphor, a a visual symbol for she's trying to bring a little bit of that you know, modernity and the modern world yeah. thinking that it's going to help. I saw, I saw she, she, you know, her local doll, she ripped the head off. I'm going to replace it with this even better thing. And the same damn thing happens. Yep. This doll is going to get ripped apart too. I, I love, I love when you can read such things into that, yep. whether or not Fulci intended all of this uh, down to the letter. I, I would imagine, all, you know, it's all open to interpretation, but that to me is the fun of a rich movie is that you can have those discussions. Yes, absolutely. And both of these movies are are absolutely that. And uh, and it's interesting because Don Alberto calls uh, Martelli and Patrizia trying to track down uh, his mother. He's, his mother has gone missing. His mother and sister have gone missing. And there the, the, the starts to be the suspicion that the mother, who's played by, again, famed Greek actress Irene Pappas, uh, may be responsible for the killings. And she is she's real mean throughout this whole. She gives great like Greek grandmother looks. Or oh, Greek she's she's looks. it's it's yeah. devastating her looks. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Here we're going to draw our spoiler line. If you don't want to learn the the, the finale of Don't Torture Duckling, skip to the next chapter and we'll take you to our our outro. Martelli and Patrizia go off looking like it's – they kind of become this sort of detective team in the last act. And they go off looking for the mother and the daughter. But Don Alberto finds the mother and the the sister first. And it's revealed that the girl is in danger not from her mother but from her brother. Don Alberto murdered the three boys, all of whom played soccer on the church grounds. And he did it because he thought all of them were on the verge of sinning, as adults do. So he killed them to send them to heaven before they could fall from God's grace. And holy shit, is that a terrifying motive? Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, and you want to talk about post-Manson. One of the beliefs that was taught to that cult and, and, and in many cults is, um, a, and which is a real twisting and perversion of many uh, mainstream religions views, is that the material world is not all that there is. Right. Uh, it's probably not even the most important, right? Uh, and then you can start to switch that into taking away life physical life and material world, uh, the material world from someone is actually, you are giving them a great gift and a blessing. Yeah. 
So you start to veer into this murder is good territory, which I think most of us agree incorrect. Not not good. Not good. Yeah. Um, no. And, and I want to I want to go back to two earlier points that I remarked on when we got there because I, I think know, I know what you're talking now about. Now that we we sort of the, in the woods. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a first when McKelly sneaks out after getting the phone call. Beyond the fact that he clearly knew his killer. He meets the killer right underneath a giant cross. That cross is going to kill you, kid. Yeah. And, and it's a, and a, a crucifix, yes? Yes. It is not just a cross. It is a yeah, crucifix. Yeah. You're, you're are correct. Absolutely. And I'm just like, you're, you're, telling us, you're telling us who it is. And then the sequence at McKelly's funeral, his mother cries out. The mother of the, of the dead boy cries out, he's here. He's here. I know he is. The killer is here with us. And the camera immediately pans over to Don Alberto and lingers as he turns directly, directly to the camera. And then only after that does it move over to Patrizia and Machara, both of whom the, the, the film wanted the audience to be suspicious of at that point. But it gives you the killer's identity. It, but like Sam Dalmas in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, you don't realize what you've just seen. It's extraordinary. It is, it is. And now uh, to go back to the why did Don do this now? Yeah. Presumably, he's also grown up and lived in this village. Yeah. He's been the, this is not like, oh, he became priest two months ago, even though he's young. It's probably, no, no. you know, recent-ish because it hasn't been 30 years of him being the priest either. No, no, he's, he's clearly a young guy, so he may have only left to go to seminary. But the, the real question is, why do the killings now? Because there are there is a real motive for them from him, right? Right. He's going to save souls. What about now, though? Because you can say, yes, the boys are hitting puberty, so they're going into that time of life where he could see them starting to sin, right? Right. That is a, a version of it, but... He must have seen other boys go through that process. Yeah. So why did he turn murderous now? As far as I know, textually in the film, there's only one thing that we are given that could possibly answer it, as ludicrous as it sounds. It's because that magic was performed. That ritual was performed. Literally, there's nothing else. It's not like, oh, something happened with his sister that's now switched. No, no, Like, you know, there's not even a a, a thing in the past that's presented, like a Mrs. Voorhees kind of a thing. And it's now it's Jason's birthday. Right, right, right. And she's kind of snapped over time because the, and the camp's reopening. Right. The only why now is, is her magic. Oh my goodness. Whether or not you choose to believe it, that's up to you. But uh, there's, you know, if someone else... If there is something I missed and there's a good reason that turned him, uh, turned the priest, please, please uh, reach out. I don't think so. I mean, that's as close as I think you get. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's amazing. And you want to talk about the rot in society. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> You've got uh, the, the Catholic priest being, he's going to kill you to oh, save you. Yeah. I, I'm not yeah. even sure that that qualifies as subtext at this point. Uh, <laughs> no, no. It's just text text. Yeah. yeah. No, it's Yeah. Uh, the final sequence of this film is incredible as Don Alberta rips his sister from his mother's arms and carries her to the edge of the cliff with the intention of throwing the child to her death. And Mark Porrell, who who's absolutely terrifying in this scene, in the exact opposite way of Eva Renzi in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, where, where she was smiling and laughing and gleeful in her maniacal ways. Here, he's absolutely stone-faced and serious. 
believing that he is completely justified in killing these children in order to save their souls. Uh, Patrizia and Michelli reach Alberto just in time. A fight ensues near the cliff's edge, but it's an absolutely desperate struggle made worse by the fact that Malvina loves and trusts her brother. And, and can't understand what's happening. So after Alberto knocks Martelli down, the little girl rushes back into her brother's arms and he starts taking him over to the cliff again. And it's it's only in a final desperate moment as he's clinging to the cliff face that Martelli is able to throw Alberto off balance and send him plunging to his death. And just on the makeup effects here, the special effects here of, look, again, we, we've said time and time again that there are things that sometimes the effect doesn't look necessarily a hundred percent realistic from the modern perspective. And we don't care. This is one of them. Yep. Uh, it's clearly a dummy, but when you see the face get like sm- like broken, like it gets broken and ripped open as it like hits the cliff going down again and again. And it is uh, for you special effects gore hounds out there. Uh, this is what another one in this movie. Oh yeah. There aren't many, but the ones that exist, you, uh, this is the Fulci you know. Yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's incredible. Both, both of the films this week are, are incredible. And Lucio Fulci considered particular Don't Torture a Duckling to be the best film of his career. And because of the film's controversial criticism of Catholicism and the church, it was basically blacklisted. Like it only received a li- limited theatrical run in Europe. It had no re- U.S. release whatsoever theatrically. And it's probably the darkest film that we'll discuss in this series, but make no mistake, it is incredible and well worth watching. I mean, I have not, he made a lot of movies, uh, so there are many that I have not seen, but from what I have seen, I would agree with him. It's, it, in, in my opinion, it's his best movie. It's, it's amazing. Like, no, and it's not even close. Yeah. Like this, this movie, while I love a lot of his movies and they might make me feel in the terms of going, yeah, you know, <laughs> This one made me feel in the human way, um, like yeah. the, the depth and yeah. breadth of, of the human experience uh, and not yes. even though it's on the dark side of things for sure. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Tough picture. A tough picture, but a great picture. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's I think that's the place we'll we'll stop for today. And while Lucio Fulci would go on to make other Gialli as well as the supernatural horror films that he's best known for. Uh, these two films are just two of the most extraordinary works of this genre. And and we may cover some of his later Gialli in, in bonus episodes or something like that. You know, at some point we'll maybe do like, uh, you know, the psychic, the, the New York Ripper, uh, that kind New of thing. New York Ripper is brutal, dude. I love it. Uh, that's that's, that's uh, perfect for a bonus episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But join us next week as we'll turn our attention back to the man who set the model for the Giallo film as we explore Mario Bava's highly influential film, Bay of Blood, as well as Luciano Ercoli's Death Walks on High Heels. And returning to the show to discuss both those films will be a very special guest, filmmaker and reverend entertainment founder, Justin Beam. We're always excited to have Justin on the show and believe us, you will not want to miss it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky, all at Get Me Another Pod. If you like the show, please tell your friends, tell your enemies, 
tell those hippies who may or may not mistake you for a reptile, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when studios say, get me another.